0: This is a Triple J Podcast. (laughs) Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. I'm wondering, have you wrecked your algorithm on TikTok or Instagram? Like, you've looked at one too many weird things. All it takes is one, just one. And now all you're getting is clips from random 90s shows or instructions on bed sheet folding or something. Oh, they destroy us algorithms. So how do they work? But more importantly... Can you retake control? Can you reset your algorithm? That's coming up later. Also on Hack, a big chat with actor Aisha D. She's made it big in the US with shows like The Bold Type. Maybe you're a fan. She's back in Australia right now for a new show with a really important message.
1: We'll be getting into that.
0: First, though.
1: Hack. We know that, unfortunately, the experience of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation is rife in our communities. These are not historical events that we're looking at. These are current.
2: On Triple J.
0: The Disability Royal Commission has wrapped up its final hearings this week after years of intense and often horrifying evidence, like stories of assaults in group homes, children being removed from parents, workers being paid just over two dollars an hour. And these last few days of the inquiry have also been heartbreaking. Like the Commission heard a shocking case of abuse and neglect of two Queensland boys with intellectual disability. They were found malnourished, locked in their bedroom. It's really horrible stuff. The ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter Naz Campanella has been covering the Royal Commission since it started. We're lucky to have her with, her with us right now. Naz, always good to have you back on Triple J. Thanks for coming in.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Look, can you tell us about this specific case in Queensland? Like, what has happened?
3: Yeah, this is a pretty shocking case. So, it was about two boys known to the Royal Commission as Caleb and Jonathan. That's not their real names. And they were found in their home. They were locked in their room, living in squalid conditions. They were naked. There were soiled nappies on the floor, excrement on the walls. And they were found after emergency services were called to the property. Their father was found deceased in the room next door. He had died from a terminal illness. Now, it's been three days of evidence over this week um, for for this particular case study in Queensland. And Over the course of those three days, we've heard from multiple agencies that said that, for example, they went to school often smelling of faeces and urine and that the staff at the school often had to bathe the boys, give them clean clothes to wear, Mm. and that they often had to cut their hair because the smell of urine was so strong that it couldn't be washed out. And over the lifetime of, of the schooling years for those boys, only one student, protection report was made. We also heard from a witness called Megan Crawford. She was from the um, uh, Department of Children and Youth Justice Multicultural Affairs, and she did concede that more could have and should have been done to prevent the abuse and neglect of these boys.
0: It's horrible. Like, it's... Stuff that you can't even imagine. And unfortunately, we've heard so many horrible stories during this Royal Commission. As you've spent the last few years covering this inquiry, is there anything that stands out for you that struck you in all of this evidence that you've heard and you just can't get it out of your mind?
3: Look, it has been four and a half years of listening to these stories. It's been a really long Royal Commission more than 10,000 people with uh, have shared their stories either through submissions, public hearings or a private session. And I think what's been really amazing is just how willing and brave these witnesses have been. They've either been people with disability, their advocates and family members. And so I, I mean In the disability community, we have known for a very long time about this this violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. And what advocates have told me this week in reflecting on the past four and a half years of the Royal Commission is that they want the wider Australian community to know that these are not historic situations. They are happening even now in particularly close settings like group homes and sheltered workshops where people might be paid just over $2 an hour to do work. And... They want you to know that these abuses are still happening, and they're hoping that real change will be brought about by this royal commission.
0: Of course, and I mean, the royal commissions are different lengths as well as, like you, you you were saying, this is a really big one. We saw the robo debt one, which is was a much more confined uh, royal commission, obviously because it was covering uh, not as much. This is just huge in its scope. The kinds of things yeah. it was trying to to unearth.
3: It's been looking at the lifespan of a person with disability, so anything and everything from education employment, remembering that there's lots of types of employment. You know, a lot of people with intellectual disability are still working in these sheltered workshops where they are paid those really low wages. It's about 20,000 people. Um, who are working in those settings. And so then it's been things like group homes, looking at how the NDIS works across a person's life and how people engage with it. And then also things like people with intellectual disability and how they're treated in the healthcare system. And then more specific cases like what we had this week with the two boys with intellectual disability and the abuse abuse and neglect they faced. So it's been a really wide-ranging commission in terms of its, uh, I guess, scope.
0: You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter, Naz Campanella, about the Royal Commission, the Disability Royal Commission that's wrapping up hearings. Naz, what happens now? I imagine it's a bit of a process because all this information has to come together and then hopefully there are some recommendations made, right?
3: Yeah, there's it all comes together in the form of a report. It's handed down in September, and the community is definitely hoping for some sweeping recommendations that do lead to the long-term change that they' They've all been talking about this. It was a really big royal commission that the community fought for. The community wanted, so they are hoping for results.
0: Yeah, and you've been speaking with a lot of people, advocates, and a lot of young people as well. And I guess one of the good things about the royal commission has been seeing so many young people share their experiences uh, through life. Are those? advocates that you're speaking with hopeful that there is going to be change out of this?
3: Yeah, look, many of them are hopeful of change. I think it's been a really big thing for lots of people to share their stories. These have often been horrific and very personal stories. And it's been difficult to have those, you know, shared for for people to actually talk about them in whatever way suits their needs, but then also to hear, but then also I think it's important for people to hear them, no matter whether you're disabled or non-disabled, because this, as many of the advocates say, it is still happening and needs to stop.
0: It's been such a huge story. You've been covering it for years and your team, the Disability Affairs team at the ABC. Can I just say, well done on such brilliant coverage, because I feel like a few years ago, even, we wouldn't have seen the kind of really nuanced and amazing coverage that we've seen from you, Naz. So we love you at triple j obviously but we particularly have appreciated this reporting which is making such a difference we'll keep everyone across the developments here in this story abc disability affairs reporter naz campanella thanks for your time
3: thank you so much
0: hack on triple j yeah big stories of naz's online you can look them up on abc news so many messages as well people saying missed your voice naz naz lovely to have you back We all miss snazz on Triple J.
1: Hack. Oh, no. What? I'm stereotype. I'm the lesbian that brings the moving band to the second date. That's me. They just seemed so normal. What, did you think he'd have a sign on his head? Put
2: out. On Triple J.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she's loved all over the world for shows like The Bold Type. Maybe you were really into it. Maybe you even remember her from The Saddle Club. Aisha D has had huge success in the United States in recent years. Right now, she's back in Australia starring in a new show covering some really serious stuff. There are two types of people
1: in this world. Those who think family violence would never happen to them. And those who know it can happen to anyone. (laughs) What's going on with you?
0: something's up. Yeah, family violence. And we know a woman is killed by an intimate partner every 10 days in Australia. Experts say it's an epidemic. But despite more conversations around it in the media, in politics, in society, it's not something that gets a lot of attention. It's not something that we talk about amongst ourselves. Well, this new show that Asia's in, it's premiering tonight on SBS, it's called Safe Home. And I'm so happy to say Aisha D is with us right now to chat about it. Aisha, thanks so much for coming on Hack.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. This is such a cool little room.
0: (laughs) You like the room?
1: I do. It's got good vibes in here. (laughs) Yeah, it
0: does. We have a lot of good times in this studio. (laughs) Firstly, after so much kind of success overseas in the US, how does it feel or how has it felt being back in Australia and making shows here?
1: Oh, I mean, Australia is my home. It's like... There's something really special about being here. I always feel more grounded when I'm here. It's always been important for me to, you know, tell stories here, especially ones like this one. But there hasn't always been kind of the the space for me here. It was honestly kind of easier for me to just go elsewhere to work, and it's been really beautiful to kind of see this this evolution happening in Australia with, with film and television and there's there's an appetite for something new and I have the opportunity to come back and work and
0: tell stories. That's it's... so interesting. I want to get on to that in a bit, just how you've seen things shift in mm. Australia, especially in the, uh, you know, entertainment space and the drama space over the last few years. But this particular show, Safe Home, it is... Powerful, And I I throw that word around a lot. I do. (laughs) I'm like, this is powerful, that's powerful. This truly is, though. Like, I have watched three episodes. It covers some intense stuff, but also really relatable in a way that a lot of our listeners now are going to relate to, understand, like, your character, Phoebe, in her 20s, living in a share house, uh, trying to get ahead in her career, also figuring out exactly what she wants to do, where she wants to be. She leaves this big flash law firm to work at a family violence legal centre and then what happens to her there changes her life. Has this show changed your life? And I mean your views on family violence and what you've learned through this process. Who commits family violence? Who's targeted? Your views on all of that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the first time I read the pilot episode, it really challenged me and made me ask questions that I kind of had never really asked myself before. It made me feel more curious, but I think, and this is also the reason why I felt like I had to do it. It didn't It didn't feel like it was manipulating me as an audience member, whereas a lot of stories that kind of centre domestic violence and family violence, they kind of feel quite manipulative and it feels like I'm being re-traumatised for no reason. Safe Home was just a kind of something I had not really experienced before and that it was it was challenging me. It was forcing me to ask questions, but it also made me feel really held. What about the character itself? Like this
0: must've been one of the more intense roles Mm. that you've played. Was it hard to figure out Phoebe or did you see a lot of yourself in her?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm also a messy bitch. So (laughs) (laughs) we are the same in that way. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I saw a lot of myself in her. She's also very different to me, but I think I always want to be playing characters that feel like a departure from the last thing, you know. I, I don't ever want to do the same thing twice and I kind of want to keep making myself feel scared because that feels like an, an important part of the process. I want to feel butterflies in my stomach. I, I want to feel like oh, I maybe I can't do it, you know. But I also I just like that she's kind of chaotic and she doesn't always make the right choice. She makes a lot of mistakes and... I contain multitudes. I want to play characters that also contain multitudes.
0: The whole premise of this show is family violence. And there's a line from your character in the very first episode where she says there are two types of people in this world, those who think family violence will never happen to them and those who know that it can happen to anyone. Do you think that there are a lot of young Australians especially who think this isn't something that's relevant to me?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I guess depending on the person, but we all kind of have this idea that family violence is kind of happening over there in the distance. But given the statistics, it's not. It's happening in our homes. It's happening in our workplaces. There is also this kind of, and I think this is kind of a theme worldwide, not just in Australia, but this blasé attitude of like, oh, well, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just get up and leave? Mm. (laughs) We want like a perfect victim and we want a monster to be the perpetrator and instead these stories are so much more layered than that and I think really at the heart of Safe Home we're kind of challenging people to like look at the situation and see that it's not as simple as just getting up and leaving.
0: Well, yeah, and also the stories that you're telling, it's people of different ages. Mm -hmm. They're from different cultural backgrounds. Geographically, they're from different parts of the country. Some stories are centred in the city, some are centred in the country. Hmm. Was that an important part of it, you think, as well? Because that could get really messy, tying all of that together. But I think it's worked really well in this show.
1: Yeah, well I mean Anna Barnes, our creator, writer, showrunner, she's incredible. She actually worked in a community legal center. She did uh the job that we see Phoebe do. Right. So she was such an uh, incredible resource, I think, for everyone, but especially for myself, because I you know, I'm not a writer. I've never had a real job. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really had to look to her for uh a lot of information and she was just she's such a beautiful, beautiful human, but also she's very passionate about the subject because she actually has worked in the sector. The show is also centering the women that work, the the people that work in these centres that are doing such incredible work and kind of the toll that that really takes on them as well.
0: Well, yeah, and that's the thing that maybe we don't see generally. And, Mm. um, you know, even me as a journalist and having covered family violence my whole career There were moments in the show where I thought, wow, that might have been the impact of something I've said on someone who works in this space Mm. or um, perhaps a survivor of family violence. Like it was really, it holds up a mirror to so many Mm. different people, police, journalists, lawyers themselves, just general society. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with actor Aisha D about her new show, Safe Home on SBS. It's exploring the massive family violence problem in Australia. Aisha, you've had massive success around the world. People loved you on The Bold Type, obviously, but huge following on social media as well. How has that been over the past few years? Has it been pretty confronting Mm. or has it been a pretty wild ride, this whole thing?
1: Um I don't know why anyone follows me on social media because I'm so chaotic. I will not post for months at a time and then be like, "Hi." People love
0: that though. They're oh, like, "Oh, I don't know. Ooh, there's a post there." <laughs>
1: no. Um I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm like a there's an old lady trapped inside here who just like doesn't know how to work the telephone. I don't know yet. Yeah, but does it still
0: it's... feel a bit weird? Like you've got hundreds of thousands of people following you and kind of waiting to every update whenever they come every few months. <laughs> does that feel a bit strange? You're like I'm from the Gold Coast. What's going on?
1: It does feel strange, but I also am like, oh, it's like chill. I don't know. I, I'm still just dickhead. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yes, it does feel strange. It feels incredibly overwhelming at times, but I think I just. I just feel so, so grateful. I, like, get to pay my rent dressing up and putting weird clothes on and I always said as a kid that I was, like, going to go be an actor, like, very presumptuous kid and I never, I didn't have the resources or really any way of making that happen and it's really cool that I get to do it now. I'm emotional. <laughs> oh, no. no,
0: that's amazing. I mean, also, <laughs> it must be just... You are emotional.
1: I am. I might cry. Oh, sorry.
0: But it's beautiful because I feel like so many people will relate to that pushing Mm. their whole life, wanting something, and then achieving it it's the most incredible feeling well, I think, and, but and also to like, it must be the most incredible feeling to come back and go I did do it actually <laughs> what's up because it's me again <laughs> um,
1: no. <laughs> no I just mean like it's so cool to like tell stories and then to get to talk to people about them afterwards especially when it's something that I actually really love and like the crew from Safe Home are like my family like I don't know, that's like kind of a thing that everyone says, like we're a family.
0: Aisha, you spoke a bit before about, you know, your career and how when you moved overseas it was because you thought, look, there's just more opportunities over there Mm -hmm. for me at this point. How has the industry in Australia changed Mm -hmm. in your view since you've been away or has it?
1: I think it's definitely changed, I mean, in a huge way, like a show like Heartbreak High would never have existed. I left 13 years ago. That show just didn't exist. There was no way it was ever going to exist in my mind. Seeing how wonderful that show is and how talented all of those beautiful people on the show are, I think that show is a testament to just how much has changed. I think there's obviously still more work to be done, but It's exciting. I feel like there's this really kind of electric energy in Australia and, like, film and television and what's being developed right now. I've had some incredible meetings since I've been home just talking about what's being developed and, like, what's in the works. Not even on the TV yet, but these things are coming and it's just really exciting. And I think, like, as filmmakers in Australia, we kind of have to be quite innovative because we don't have limitless resources or millions and millions of dollars to just waste. You know, we have to be creative about how we make these stories and I think that's why the stories are so beautiful.
0: So what is coming?
1: (laughs) I can't say yet. (laughs) You just start recording and then I'll Uh, tell you.
0: Nah, look, you don't need to know what's coming. All you need to know is what's here right now. I cannot (laughs) recommend this show more. It's gripping, it's sobering. And you learn a lot about yourself as an individual, perhaps, maybe us as a society as well, the more important part. Aisha D, it's been so lovely chatting, so lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming on Hack.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, honey. Hack. On Triple J.
0: Yeah, and go check the show out, Safe Home, 8.30 tonight on SBS. Of course, you can catch it on demand as well. We're getting some messages through about family violence, people's experiences. Someone says, it happened to me. I didn't even realise until my 30s that it was happening. Another person, I'm getting up the courage to leave a shit relationship now, even though it means I'll be homeless in my car. I won't put up with the abuse that my parents and grandparents did. That's somebody there. And hey, just a reminder that there are services that can help you. There are people you can turn to when you go through these uh, really, you know, tough experiences. One eight hundred respect is a hotline that's there. It's available for free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to support people impacted by domestic, family, sexual violence. So make sure you know that number, 1-800-RESPECT. Hack.
3: Okay, has anyone else noticed that your For You page has been a little too accurate lately? TikTok knows everything about us.
0: On Triple jack. Can you reset your algorithm on social media? Can you do it? You know, your Explore page on Instagram or your For You page on TikTok. I don't know about you, mine has some crazy stuff on there. What's the one thing that keeps bombarding you on social media that you can't stand? Is it dog tricks? Subway surfer videos, horses' hooves being picked out. I don't know. Message in 043975755. How much control do these algorithms have on what we see? How do they work? Because I think we all have, like, a vague idea, but what's actually going into this? Let's ask someone who's done a fair bit of research into this. Dr Mark Xiong is a digital ethics expert from the University of Melbourne, and he's with us now. Dr Mark, thanks for coming on Hack. Dave, thanks for having me on the show. Talking about algorithms and how they work, they basically spit out more of what we spend time looking at, right? If we look at some uh, subject matter, we're going to be seeing more of those kinds of videos. Is that basically it?
2: Um, At this point, probably I'll just uh, go back a bit and explain literally what an algorithm is. You might have heard of algorithm. the term algorithm being used in the news, being used everywhere, the algorithm is powerful. But what it really is to just separate the jargon from what it really is, is just a set of rules for the computer to do stuff, right? So, for example, all of us know Wordle, all of us enjoy Wordle probably. Uh, and even solving a Wordle itself is an algorithm for us. We can only have five goes. We can only use words in the dictionary. We can't um, go past the letter configurations with the yellow tiles and the green tiles. And again, lighthearted example would be Paul Kelly's How to Make Gravy. That's literally an algorithm to make gravy. So <laughs> I think with that in mind, now we can slowly unpack what social media platforms do in your algorithms. Well, what they're trying to do is show you an interesting for you page or news feed or recommend you some other post, right? But the gist is they're trying to do this to maximize your attention and engagement. And that's what we well, probably call optimizing for engagement. And that's the end objective. Now, why they're doing this, it's because obviously the more you use social media, the more you go on and doom scroll, the more advertisers are likely to sell stuff to you and that increases their revenue. So back to the issue of can we actually game it? Well, the answer is surprisingly not as much as we think. That's interesting.
0: Okay, because I think we're all hoping we can because people are seeing some really annoying stuff. I've got messages coming through. Someone says, during peak COVID lockdowns, my TikTok algorithm got so bad with conspiracies, I had to delete my account because I couldn't fix it. Another wor- Another person says, my For You page is full of breakup videos. I recently broke up with my boyfriend. Now it's all I see. That would be horrifying. Another person, every couple of weeks, I have to spend ages going through my feed, hiding crap I don't care about and telling it not to show me the stuff it does, but it never stays gone for too long. Do we know, Dr. Mark, how many criteria they're using in these algorithms? Like how much information is being used?
2: Yep. Uh, the reason I brought the uh, Paul Kelly example is, well, these social media companies have proprietary algorithms. Basically, this called call it the secret source, where obviously it's not in their interest to disclose what's going on behind the scenes, how it recommends stuff. But the end objective is still roughly the same, getting you to use their product more, getting you more um, content that would um, tantalize and get you to just spend lots of time on it, even though sometimes the predictions are wrong. But um, Twitter has recently re- uh, revealed their source code, so the technical code behind it. It's really hard to understand. You probably need a team of colleagues to look through the code, right? And I think one of the um, neural networks or like fancy fancy systems they use to uh, present recommendations, uses about 48 million parameters. That's just wow. hard to wrap my head around. 48 million. <laughs> yep. And basically, if I were to just solve a, a problem with a graph on a piece of paper, I would just probably go, look, look, there's two parameters there. I can't even solve this on paper. What more? 48 million. And this is <laughs> why these um, algorithms are what um, we call black box, because you can't really see what's going on in that. And how we can game it is, or claims to be able to game it, is by changing things we present on social media. So, for example, the more we post about um, our favourite foodie club, for instance, um, we can see how our recommendations would change based on what we do, but we can never fully understand what's inside due to technical complexity.
0: Okay, so the algorithms that the social media companies are using here, are they a big secret? Do we
2: know how some of them work? Um, basically, it's for example um, in uh, recent investigation on TikTok, it's the how you interact with TikTok, pretty much how fast you scroll or how long you take to view a post. In terms of Facebook, it's probably slightly more well known because the Facebook actually has settings to allow you to customize uh, what ads advertisers can show you. That's basically a combination of, let's say, your interests, what stuff you choose to post on, what you like. And that leads us to, can we actually start taking control of our newsfeed algorithms Again, the answer's a bit more nuanced. It's not a straightforward yes or no. We can probably start by going, hey, we don't want to see more of um, these posts by this user who's churning out fake news, just unfollow them. And there's also things you can do, for example, just, just taking a mindful break from social media, that way, the algorithm can't have more data points in which it says, hmm, maybe Dave would like to see more of this and therefore we should show more to Dave. We can just go off social media for a bit, take mindful breaks.
0: Okay, so the doom scrolling, we know it's bad, but it's doing bad things for the algorithms. That's a bottom, bottom line there. We've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, what about on Spotify? I get recommended the same kind of stuff all the time. I want to ex- be exposed to new music I've never heard before. Broaden my musical tastes. Down with the algorithm. That was from Tom in Hawthorne. Another person says, ever since my sister told me she was pregnant, my algorithm keeps sending me new mum tips and baby core content. Meanwhile, I'm so far from having children. Stop. Yeah, look, annoying stuff coming through on the text line, what people are saying. I wonder, Dr. Mark Xiong, do you think that as we see social media develop, that there'll be a move away from this kind of stuff? Because people um, are a bit over the algorithms and maybe the newer platforms that develop will be moving, you know, in a different direction.
2: Um, Some of the newer platforms claim to give control back to the user. But since this is a new topic with the changes happening in the landscape of social media, I think the jury is still out. But what we can do, what we're observing in the tech space is, for example, browsers like Safari and Firefox have uh, privacy-preserving technologies that would reduce ads, By reducing ads, it will pretty much reduce the um, targeting technologies that advertisers will use to target you, and hopefully that might help in the um, quest to have a better news feed and less sponsored content of things we don't want to see.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Well, that is what we're all after, I guess. Dr. Mark Cheong from the University of Melbourne, I'm wondering, do you battle with the algorithm as well when you're on your socials? How's it looking?
2: Yes, I, I do battle with it myself and basically to, um, one of the, um, readers text and with my music recommendations, same thing. I just want it to introduce me to more music that. I w- want to listen to not the same stuff over again. Um. So there's there's pros and cons to personalization, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I guess there's some people that really like that. I don't know. I don't know. We're getting a lot of messages through on the text line, though. People not happy with the stuff that they're being dished up. Hey, I get it. I understand there were some tips in there that maybe you can take to reduce the impact it's having on you. I don't know. Dr. Mark Cheong from the University of Melbourne, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack
2: on Triple J.